we begin with the gospel. I want to focus on the final lines of the reading. My sheep hear my voice. This is John 10. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my father has given me is greater than all else. And no one can snatch it out of the father's hand. The father and I are one. I want to draw attention to the oddity of one detail. Jesus says that what his father has given him is greater than all else, the realest of all realities. And he insists that no one can snatch it out of the father's hand. It has been given to him, and yet it is the father's. It is in the father's hand. Consider for a moment what this means. What has been given to him is still kept for him. What is kept for him is precisely what has been given to him. What Jesus has received as his own remains in his father's care for him as son. And because it is in his father's care for him as son, Jesus has received it as his own. What, what does this mean? It does not mean that the father continues to clutch at what he has given, to hold it over the son as leverage. The father does not cling to the son any more than the son grasps at his equality with the father. No, the gift the father gives is given in such a way that it is securely the son's. Jesus is who he is because of how he is loved by the father. And it is that love, which is greater than all else, that holds the son in such a way that he is freed to be fully, excessively, abundantly himself. Precisely as the one so loved, Jesus loves us and shares with us his eternal life. He cannot be snatched out of the Father's hand, and for the same reason, we cannot be snatched out of his. In Revelation 7, John the Revelator sees a throng robed in white, and he is asked who they are and where they've come from. He is wise enough to admit he doesn't know. You, sir, are the one who knows the answer, he says. And he is told by one of the elders, these are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of, the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Notice, the, these white-robed overcomers, John sees, are thronged before the throne. They are praised for worshiping within God's temple, and for this reason they are assured they will be sheltered by the one seated on the throne. We know from John's gospel that Jesus' body is the temple, so it is in him that these saints shall be sheltered. Again, and again, including at the beginning of this reading, John has spoken of the Lamb, John the Revelator, has spoken of the Lamb as standing before or beside the throne, as these white-robed overcomers are now, in the presence of the one seated on the throne. Now, however, John hears the Lamb named as the one standing at the center of the throne. What has happened? The Father, the one seated on the throne, has made room for the Lamb in his rule, his reign. Jesus has been sheltered and just in that way now has become a shelter for us, the Father's shelter for us. And he has promised that those who overcome, 
in, in, earlier in, in Revelation, Jesus has promised that those who overcome shall be granted to sit with him on his throne. So what we have dis- described for us in Revelation 7 is the fulfillment of the movement of all things toward and into the center of the throne of God. All things are being gathered up into the Son and then in him given to the Father so that creation is being filled up with and transfigured by the life of God. It is the Lamb, also, who is said to be standing at the center of the throne. And he is the one who shepherds us. The Lamb shepherds us. The shepherd is himself a sheep. The Messiah, the King, has been kind to us by becoming one of our kind, by making himself our kin. The creator has become a creature without in any way changing what it means for him to be creator. And in so doing, he has changed forever everything about what it means for us to be creatures. He has become one of our kind, made us his kin, so we can share in his kingdom as co-heirs and co-regents, as fellow kings, kings with him, kinging as he kings. As the Father shepherded the Son, so the Son shepherds us, and we are as secure in Him as He is in His Father. We cannot be snatched away from Him any more than He can be cut off from the Father. John 1 makes it clear that Jesus' own human life, His creaturely liveliness, the life that came alive in Him, is nothing but the Father's gift to Him and to all things. And that life, that liveliness, is what Jesus has shared with us. The Father has made room for the Son, and the Son has made room for us, and all of that is realized by the Spirit, who is the roominess of God. Once we've gotten some sense of this logic, this perichoretic logic that is the triune life, we can begin to hear Psalm 23 as promising not a good life, and anything but what we've been told is the good life, but a share in God's life, the right pathways along which we are shepherded are the pathways opened up within God's life with God. To be led by Jesus, to be shepherded by him, is therefore to be caught up in the flow of his spirit-enlivened communion with the Father, to be born along with him and in him by the giddy giving and receiving that the eternal spirit eternally makes possible. Psalm 23 begins with a profession, the Lord is my shepherd. In these opening lines, the psalmist speaks of God in the third person. He speaks about God. Suddenly, at the heart of the psalm, he begins to speak to God. You are with me. What has changed from the Lord is my shepherd to you are with me? The psalmist has been led away from the still waters and green pastures down into the dark valley. And his suffering has turned his profession into prayer. I want to be as clear as I can. God does not bring suffering on us. God does not want us to suffer. Suffering in itself does not do us any good. But God does bring the suffering ones to us and God leads us to them. God does not want us to go through suffering. God wants the suffering to go through us as we are with those who are suffering. God is the God of the suffering. God is the God who suffers with and in the suffering. So if we are to know God as God is, if we are to become one with God as God wants us to be, then we cannot not suffer with the suffering God alongside those who are in pain. 
Jesus, we might say it like this, Jesus is a guest who stays only in the house of the wounded. The wounded are his friends. So we cannot be with him unless we are willing to be with them, unless we are willing to befriend the wounded, befriend those who can wound us. We cannot be with the one who was wounded for our transgressions and who desires to know us as friends. There is no other way to know God. There is no other God to know. We need to remember this, too. The shadow in the valley of death is cast by his wounded body. The darkness of his sorrows is the deepest darkness. A darkness so deep it's luminous. If we can learn what that means, to, to be at peace in the shadow of his body hung on the cross, then we can learn to be at peace in any shadow, including the shadow of other deaths, and even more at peace than we were beside the still waters. This, by the way, is what I see happening in so many icons of Mary and John and, and others of those who love Jesus at the foot of the cross. They are, they are learning to be still there. They are learning to be at peace, even in their sorrow, to be at peace beside his body, which is casting that shadow. But we, we can learn all of that only after our professions, our declarations have been shattered into desperate and then eventually delighted prayer. Anyone can speak of God in the third person. Indeed, everyone does. Wolves do, as well as sheep. Hirelings do, as well as shepherds. But what we need, obviously, especially in times like these, is to allow the good shepherd, as opposed to the hirelings, to lead us into the vicinity of those who are suffering, especially those whom we think deserve their suffering, so we become so sick of what we've been saying about God that we have no choice but to speak to him on their behalf, as well as our own, and to listen to what he's saying, not about us and even less about them, but to us about ourselves for them. Then and only then, we will find we have been led through the darkness into a new light. You spread a table before me in the presence of those who trouble me, in the presence of my enemies. Why does God do this? Why does God prepare the table in the presence of our enemies? So we will make room for them at the table as he has made room for us on the throne. So we can serve him as he has served us. So we can enjoy them as he enjoys us. Each week, we're called to the Lord's table with these words, the gifts of God for the people of God. But we hear that invitation rightly only if we hear it as a call to welcome others into the center of the throne with us. If we welcome others around the table. Christ, the temple, opens himself to us so we can open ourselves to others. He throws open the gates so we will throw open the gates. He offers us the gifts of his body and blood so we can receive his life, his liveliness, which is itself a gift from the Father, so we can live that life in a way that lights the world. Look at the psalm's final line. Surely your goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, here at the end, at the very end, the psalmist is speaking for the first time, in the first person, really. 
speaking not only to God, but speaking with and within God as God speaks. And this is what the psalm promises. We are all being born along by God's love for God and God's love for us, which is God's love for God. Learning to love ourselves not only because God loves us, but with God's love for us. This is the empowerment the Holy Spirit gives, which frees us from all shame and presumption, all anxiety and pretension, because it grounds us in the hospitality of the God who welcomes us to dwell in his house, not as sometime guests, but as kin, as family, and something more than family. Maximus the Confessor said it like this, For it was fitting that the creator of the universe, who by the economy of his incarnation became according to nature what he was not, should preserve without change both what he himself was by nature and what he became in his incarnation. For it is not natural to contemplate any change in God, in whom we cannot conceive of absolutely any movement whatsoever. And it is because of movement that things in motion are subject to change. We have to be led by the shepherd. We have to be guided to the still waters and beyond them into the valley and out into the open space where the table is set. This is the great and hidden mystery, Maximus says. This is the blessed end for which all things were brought into existence. And I'm quoting again. This is the divine purpose conceived before the beginning of things. And in defining it, we would say that this mystery is the preconceived goal for the sake of which everything exists, but which itself exists on account of nothing. And it was with a view to this end that God created the essences of beings. This is... Properly speaking, the limit and goal of God's providence and of the things under his providential care, since the recapitulation of the things created by God is God himself. The gathering of all things just is God living with God and drawing us up into it. No doubt you've heard, you've been told, the world does not revolve around you. And that's true. But God does.